Will you be the one to restore equilibrium to the world? Well, let's find out with Magic Carpet, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 87 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back once again to talk to you all about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So, yeah, I'm back. I'm here, and uh, whew, been a crazy, uh, crazy week. There was uh, some family stuff going on. Unfortunately, uh, there was a bit of uh, a death, so we had to you know, attend a funeral, and family came in, and and all that, and uh, my wife and I are both feeling a little bit under the weather, so uh, yeah, sorry if I'm not quite as energetic as I normally am, I'm uh, feeling a little low energy right now, but uh, I still figured, you know, show's all written up, ready to go, so, uh, you know, why, why delay? Let's uh, get things out of the way, weather's warming up, uh, spring is coming, I think, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to get out skiing for the rest of the, for, for the remainder of the season, it seems like uh, the warmer temperatures are here, but uh yeah. Anyways, all that aside, let's jump into emails. First email is from Robert and Robert writes, Hey Joe, good Sim Tower episode. This was a game that I never played, but I'm not sure why. I remember thinking it looked cool. And for some reason, I distinctly remember the box art with the helicopters circling the tower. I miss, I think it must've been after another game, or I think I must've been after another game anytime I was in the store and saw it. I checked out some screenshots just now to refresh my memory, and I kind of dug the graphics. Though it does look like it is a bit visually repetitive from room to room, uh, it looks pretty good in my opinion. Tangentially, as I was looking through screenshots, I saw a couple of characters that show up in the game, and they're pretty funny. The terrorist looks inbred, and one of the high-profile characters that can show up at your tower is apparently named Gil Bates. Ha ha ha. Random question. I wanted to ask you about a game that I guess isn't actually even a game, but I used to have some fun with it. It was a program that came with some version of the Sound Blaster card to showcase sound quality, and it was called Dr. Spazzo, pronounced how it looks, yes. Uh, have you ever played or seen this? I haven't met anyone who's played Dr. Spazzo, but uh, the gist of the program is that Dr. Spazzo is some sort of therapist or psychologist, and uh, you would type in your problems in big blue command prompt-like screen, and Dr. Spazzo would respond audibly in uh, an explicitly robot-like voice with obviously canned responses to try and help you work through your problems. And he uh, linked a YouTube video. Um carries on a few fond memories of dr spazzo dr spazzo's verbal introduction to you as a patient was about a full paragraph's worth of an introduction and i played it so many times that i could still tell you word for word the whole thing even though the entire purpose of the program was to showcase how great the sound capabilities are one of the words that dr spazzo pronounced the most often was woefully mispronounced why was always pronounced way <laughs> i can't tell you how many times i heard i understand whatever you just typed in is important to you but way I eventually learned that you could type say followed by anything whatsoever. Of course, it didn't take me and my friends any time whatsoever to start making up, making Dr. Spazzo say obscene things, usually stretching them out to paragraphs at a time. Another thing we discovered was that you could literally type anything and he would just try to pronounce it. It was more entertaining than it should have been to just mash on the keys until two or three full lines of text were filled up and listen to him pronounce every letter in succession as a single word. 
Also, if he did the same thing with numbers, he would actually read the whole thing properly. For example, 546 octillion, 300 heptillion, 120, 123 hexillion, all the way to the final digit. Looking forward to the next episode as usual. Well, thanks, Robert. And, um, you know, for the first part, uh, you may you may be thinking of the box art of Sim Tower, but I think the box art of Streets of Sim City was also pretty similar. So you might be thinking of that one too. And yes, I definitely have memories of uh, of Doctor Spazzo. Uh, same thing. My my friends and I would try and uh, you know we we'd try and get him mad at us. We'd try and get him to say horrible things. And uh, Doctor Spazzo was always fun. The one there was another utility that came with the Sound Blaster that was called Parrot, I think, and it was a parrot that uh, basically was linked into the sound card. And I, I think the point of it was that you would speak into the microphone and the parrot would kind of emulate what you were saying back to you. And we were never able to get that working, but we definitely spent a lot of time with uh, Dr. Spade. So I can't quite remember the, uh, you know, the, uh, the intro. It was something, what was it? I could probably just look up. I, I know that you have it in the YouTube video there. It was something like, uh, hello, my name is Dr. Spazzo from Creative Labs. How are you? Please type in your name. That kind of stuff. It, it, it was hilarious. And uh, yeah, definitely. I think any anyone who had a sound blaster uh, probably had a bit, little bit of fun with Dr. Spazzo. So thanks a lot for that. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I keep coming up with all these ideas for like these ten, tangential shows, maybe one of like funny utilities. Like I wouldn't really call it a game. I'd say it's more of a utility not even that it's a very useful utility because utilities are usually useful. That's kind of the point of the name of the word utility. But anyways, uh, you know, something where we talk about, you know, interesting utilities and, and stuff like that might, might be cool. Anyways, thanks a lot. Dr. Spatzel, my creative labs. Please enter your name. J-O-E. Hello, Joe. My name is Dr. Spatzel. I am here to help you. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Memory contents will be wiped off after you leave. So, tell me about your problems. Next, we got a quick email from Parker. And Parker writes, Hey Joe, it's Parker again. Haven't written or listened in a while, but I'm certainly pleased with the episodes I've come back to. I've been meaning to watch a Let's Play of Sim Tower since I heard about it three or four years ago. The episode finally got me to check one out, and it's just as good as you said. Anyways, good to be back. On an off-topic, will you be doing an episode on Fallout or XCOM? See you all later, Parker. Well, um, I figured I'd throw this in here just to remind everyone that there is, uh, you know, this is episode 87, so there's 86 previous episodes of the show. And uh, back in the day, I definitely did cover uh, the Fallout series, focusing on Fallout 1 and 2, and, uh, you know, mentioning Fallout 3 and New Vegas at the time. And uh, I have, in fact, two episodes on XCOM, one covering the the original, uh, was it Julian Gollop that did XCOM? Anyways, the original XCOM, uh, XCOM 2, Terror from the Deep, and XCOM, oh, what's that, the third one with the weird AI? Anyways, the one where you're in a city, XCOM Apocalypse, yeah. And I think I talk a little bit about XCOM Interceptor as well. So uh, those are earlier episodes, if you go back and look, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head right now but if you go to umbcast.com and just type in fallout then uh the name of that episode will come up that was a really really fun one and so were the xcom shows because yeah and then the other xcom show that i didn't mention was i did one i did a focus on the newer uh game from what was it 2013 or something like that or 2012 uh you know the new xcom sorry not feeling well my brain isn't working but uh yeah two xcom shows one fallout show check out the archives there's a whole bunch of stuff there that uh was a lot of fun to do 
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, time to kick things into gear. So this time around, I'm hitting a relatively important game series. I'm going to dive into the Magic Carpet games. Now, Magic Carpet is a series of two games developed... Eh, sort of, by our friend Peter Molyneux and his company, Bullfrog Productions, and published by our other friends at Electronic Arts, or as we know them today, EA. Uh, the first game in the two-game series, Magic Carpet, came out in the year 1994. So let's talk genre. Like most Bullfrog games, Magic Carpet sort of defies being put into a genre bucket. On the surface, this is a 3D first-person shooter, though underneath it has strains of Bullfrog's hallmark genre, the God Game. So let's start with the bigger one, the first-person shooter. Uh, we've seen quite a few of these already, and most of them uh, have been created by id, at least of the ones that I've covered. Uh, frankly, most of the biggest AAA games today fall under some slight variation of the first-person shooter. So, you know, if you play games today, you probably have played one of these. A first-person shooter generally places you in control of a single protagonist. Uh, you see the world through their eyes, and you directly control their body. Uh, the main gameplay comes in the form of combat with projectile-based weapons. Now, these weapons come in a multitude of shapes and sizes, including but not limited to modern fantasy or sci-fi guns, bows and arrows, crossbows, magic wands, rocket launchers, fired or placed explosives, and basically anything else you could think of. A gun that fires junk? Sure. A gun that fires portals? Hey, there's a whole game about that. Why not? A gun that fires chickens? Let's do that too. On top of this, many first-person shooters also have a melee component, albeit generally less developed than the range gameplay. This isn't always true, but you know, if you want to go by the default definition, melee is usually secondary. Uh, melee weapons range from uh, your fists or your claws, you know, no one said that you're always human in these games, uh, to bats, crowbars, clubs, knives, swords, swords, swords. <laughs> and again, virtually anything else that you can pick up and use to smash something with. Now, with these weapons in hand, you and your protagonist, oh God, I'm giggly. <laughs> oh, I make myself laugh. So with these weapons in hand, you and your protagonist make your way through a series of levels, killing or otherwise disabling enemies and obstacles and potentially defeating bosses as you progress through the game. Each level you know, might be discreet with a solid start and a solid end point. Or uh, you might simply make your way through a continuous world, picking up new weapons and fighting new and stronger enemies along the way. There may be a story to follow. Um, there may not be. On top of being a shooter, Magic Carpet, as I said, has strains of a god game to it. Now, in a god game, you take on the role of a powerful being who controls the world on a kind of macro scale. Uh, the thing that makes a god game different from other games where you kind of hover above the world and control things, you know, like a city builder or a real-time strategy game is that in a god game, your actions only affect the population of the world indirectly. For example, uh, you may have the power to create a mountain or clear out a forest in a god game. While this has a direct influence on the land, the people living in your world will react to these changes in their own way. Uh, Bullfrog sort of invented this genre with Populous, which I've previously discussed on the show in, as I just mentioned, the archives. So, yeah, we can talk about this more, but enough generalities. Let's get right to it. All right, story time. We find ourselves in a world of magic. 
At the beginning, the old gods created the world and imbued all living things with the life force known as mana. Much like in many other games, uh, those who could harness the power of mana became powerful wizards. Now, these wizards amazed the world with their feats of magical prowess. Each wizard competed against his peers to unearth more mana. Soon, this healthy competition between wizards turned into a bitter rivalry. Wizards soon tapped into dark arts in an effort to one-up their rivals, and this led to a great cataclysm, which the intro describes fairly well. In its infancy, the whole of creation glimmered against the dark void. But one place in the universe outshone all others, for it glowed brilliantly with a magical energy known as mana. The world was eventually discovered, and the first pioneers settled the land. The people dedicated their lives to separating mana from nature in order to command its powers. However, after centuries of fruitfulness, the land was rendered barren by man's insatiable greed. Fierce competition between wizards degenerated into war, great creatures being summoned to do their creator's bidding in the ensuing struggle. But the life breathed into these creatures was charged with evil, and the beasts turned against their masters. Fearing for his life, a foolish wizard and his young apprentice prepared a spell, hoping to scatter his opponents to oblivion. But the power of the spell was greater than even he could have foreseen. The whole world shook with a mighty earthquake, in which the wizard himself perished, leaving his apprentice with the arduous task of restoring the world to equilibrium. Do not be disheartened. You must return the realm to nature's order. So guess what? You're the apprentice, and it's your job to return equilibrium to the world. Now, luckily, you're not just some Mickey Mouse-style inept uh, sorcerer's apprentice. You're a master of the magic carpet. Armed with that and a keen interest in expanding your magical repertoire, we can jump into the game. Okay, gameplay time. So, we are trying to restore equilibrium to the world. Well, what they don't mention in the intro is that we're not just trying to restore equilibrium to one world. No, no, no. We are, in fact, tasked with restoring equilibrium to 50 shattered worlds. So, how do we accomplish this nebulous goal? Well, apparently it's accomplished by doing what wizards do best, collecting mana. Or mana. Mana? Mana? I said mana before. I think it's mana. <laughs> mana, 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 mana. <laughs> do, 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 do. Anyways, beginning the game doesn't have a lot of fanfare. Uh, you're plopped into the first world in a first-person view, standing atop your magic carpet. Now, much like Descent, Magic Carpet is a six degrees of freedom game, meaning your Magic Carpet can move in pretty much any direction. Now, the only restriction is that you can't roll, and also your carpet will never crash into anything. If you point yourself at the ground, your carpet will simply level off and climb over most obstacles. It really is magic. 
Now to control yourself in this 3D world, you've got a variety of input options. Now the default is uh, the good old keyboard and mouse. The mouse controls uh, you know, your carpet's facing, so moving the mouse rotates your carpet through left and right yaw, up and down pitching movements, kind of like that. Uh, forward and back is controlled by the keyboard using the forward and back uh, arrows. Uh, this acts sort of like a throttle. Hitting forward starts you forward slowly. Uh, back slows you down and eventually allows you to fly backwards. Now that's definitely handy when you're fighting certain enemies. Uh, the left and right arrows handle strafing. Now, not gonna lie, the controls are definitely a little bit squirrely and uh, they definitely take some getting used to. Uh, aside from the keyboard and mouse, you can control the game with a joystick or gamepad as well. And uh, though they weren't available at the time, I feel like a modern controller with uh, dual analog sticks would also be pretty damned handy here. So with your selected control method in mind, we start the first world. Now, aside from your magic carpet at this moment in time, you've got a whole lot of nothing. But uh, it turns out there's a red pot in front of us and uh, flying over it, we got our hands on our first spell, Possess. Now this spell is essential. In fact, it's really the only essential spell in the game. Uh, it is through this spell that you will acquire mana. You see, everything in the world, as we talked about in the intro, contains mana. You just need to figure out how to extract it and make it your own. Now, flying a bit more, we see there's a small kind of civilian village in this first world. And this is where some small aspect of the god game does come in. Now, using your possession spell, you can possess the various tents and houses that form this village. Uh, if you treat your possessed structures with respect, which basically means you don't kill people that live inside them, uh, they'll generate mana for you. Throughout your play session, uh, the current world settlement will expand and at a certain point will begin generating uh, archers for defense. Now, if you were nice, the archers will leave you be and attack enemies. And uh, if you use your powers for evil, the archers will uh, attack you because you are their enemy. Now, the other way to collect mana is by exploration. As you traverse the small spherical world map, you'll come across mana just kind of strewn about. Now, mana is represented as spheres laying on the ground and comes in three varieties. Uh, these varieties, or colors basically, of mana dictate ownership. If the mana is gold, it's neutral or unclaimed. Now, this is generally how you will first see uh, exploration mana. You can safely cast your possession spell on it, and this will turn it white. White mana is yours. You have claimed it. It belongs to you. Mana of other colors uh, has been claimed by other wizards. Now, you can't possess this mana as long as the other owning wizard is alive. Should you succeed in killing that rival wizard, be it a uh, CPU or a human-controlled rival wizard, possessing his dead corpse will transfer all of his mana to you. Now, I've already hinted at the last way to claim mana, which is killing enemies. Well, how do you do this? Why, more spells, of course. As you traverse this first map, uh, you'll come across another red pot containing your second spell, Fireball. Fireball does what you think it does. It fires a destructive fireball that causes damage to whatever you point it at. Uh, you can map either of your spells to either of your two mouse buttons. And uh, as you attack enemies with your fireballs, they will die, hopefully, and uh, leave mana behind. You claim this mana using your possession spell, and boom, it is yours. So, we've claimed a whole bunch of mana, but nothing's happening yet. Well, that's because we're still one utility spell short. Another pot nets us create castle. Uh, the castle is your home base in each world. Now, once the spell is charged, you will fire it at the ground and generate your very own mana-protecting fortress. It basically grows out of the land when... Uh, when you shoot the spell at the ground. Now, along with your castle spawns a hot air balloon 
Now this balloon's job is to travel a map and collect all of your claimed mana and return it to the castle for storage. Uh, you can cast this spell multiple times to create castle spell, and uh, which will grow your castle for greater defense and also spawn additional balloons to speed up the mana collection process and also provide a little bit of redundancy since your balloons are not invincible. They're slow moving and can be killed, so protect them. Uh, your castle also acts as a base for yourself. If you take some hits during your run, returning to the castle's general area will heal you. Uh, if you die, you'll respawn at your castle. If you die without a castle or your castle is destroyed, you are forced to restart the level. Now, once you collect a sufficient amount of mana via whichever means you deem appropriate, the message World Restored appears and uh, you're free to continue on to the next world. So, as you progress through the game, you gather a whole whack of additional spells, 24 of them in fact. Some are support spells like Heal, Shield, and Accelerate, and uh, the coolest ones affect the land around you. A little more example of the god game aspects of this whole thing. Uh, for example, you can summon a volcano, you can cause earthquakes, summon down meteors, generate lightning storms. Uh, some of the later game spells actually get pretty epic. Uh, you manage your spells through a spell interface, and like I said, you can select any two that you'd like active at any given time. Now, a lot of these terrain-altering spells could also be used to your advantage, bringing some enemies closer into range, reducing high ground, things like that. So it's not just, you know, there for damage. You can actually use the terrain to your advantage and modify it to your advantage if you so desire. Now, in later levels, some spells are restricted and, uh, you know, they only become available to you after you complete certain tasks or some are completely, you know, off, not available to you in that level because it would make things too easy. So, you know, there's definitely a big uh, variety of gameplay in uh, the 50, wow, 50 single-player missions. Now, on top of those 50 missions, uh, multiplayer network games are available for, I believe it's pretty much deathmatch-style action for up to eight players on a local network. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So to play Magic Carpet, you needed quite the machine in 1994. So at a minimum, the game required a 486 CPU, four megs of RAM, and a single speed CD-ROM. From a sound perspective, the game supported the full range of hardware from the AdLib to the Pro Audio Spectrum to all flavors of Sound Blaster and Roland devices. As I said in the last section, control-wise, we also have a bunch of options like the keyboard and mouse, joystick, or gamepad. Now, the thing that really makes Magic Carpet special is not the story, it's not the gameplay, it's not anything like that. The standout feature here, and maybe this is a crappy thing to say, but the standout feature in Magic Carpet is its engine. Now, I'm definitely going to get into a bunch more detail here regarding the engine and the dev story, but let's do a bit of an overview right now. So, the engine driving Magic Carpet, known affectionately as the Magic Carpet engine, uh, was Bullfrog's first attempt at a true full 3D game engine. Now, I mean, yeah, I guess it's technically full 3D. The sprites, like, you know, the, the, the 
tents and the the people and the enemies and stuff are 2D sprites, but they are cast onto a 3D plane. Uh, the Magic Carpet Engine supported a pretty good list of features, many of them very cutting edge for 1994. In fact, almost all of them are very cutting edge for 1994. Of course, the basis for any 3D engine is that it renders real-time 3D graphics, so obviously it did that. However, it did it natively both in 320 by 200 VGA and 640 by 480 Super VGA at 256 colors. It also offered the ability to switch between these resolutions on the fly simply by hitting the R key. Now on top of this, the engine supported dynamic lighting, morphable terrain, and GURAD shading. I think it's called, I think it's GURAD shading. G-O-U-R-A-U-D. I've I've never really known how to pronounce this properly, but I'll go with GURAD. Uh, GURAD shading is a technique to estimate or interpolate how light affects a 3D object. Now this technique gives us much more realistic shadows on objects, but is much more efficient than calculating lighting values for every pixel visible on the surface of an object. Now it has its limitations, especially with point highlights on low polygon count objects, but that's a discussion for another day. Frankly, you know, my knowledge of 3D graphical rendering techniques isn't super hot. Might be an interesting discussion to have with some of you guys that are a little bit more involved in that space. Like I could get into, you know, I did some reading to remind myself how it worked. And there's a lot of examples of, you know, point spotlights and, you know, moving and vertices and normals and, and all of that. Uh, (laughs) You know, the extent of my 3D graphics experience was my one graphics class back in my undergrad. Uh, We made a 3D tree (laughs) that was rendered at OpenGL. It was pretty damn fancy. Uh, Anyways, Aside from that, we had kind of an iMuse-style dynamic MIDI music system, uh, scene reflections in water, which is really cool for 1994. And one thing you'll notice quite a bit that I will talk about in more detail later, uh, distance fog. It's funny that distance fog is touted as a feature because it's really just a way to hide the fact that you're not drawing very far into the distance to increase game performance. We'll get there. (laughs) In addition, uh, the engine supported transparency effects, a particle system, and mouse control player camera. In fact, when you get down to brass tacks, this list of features is basically the staple for a 3D game engine even today. You go look at Unity, you go look at Unreal, they're going to support all this stuff. Sure, the resolutions are higher, the effects are prettier, the poly counts are orders of magnitude higher than they were in this game. But all in all, this is the same set of features you would get in any AAA 3D shooter today. Interestingly, and again, this is sort of a premonition of where we find ourselves today, the game supported three display modes. So we got normal, red-blue 3D, and 3D stereogram. Now the game had a set of red-blue 3D glasses uh, in the box. The stereogram one, pretty interesting. So I had to look this up because I didn't actually remember what a stereogram was. But if you remember those weird 3D eye, magic eye posters that you could buy in the 90s where, you know, to look at them, you sort of had to go cross-eyed and then you'd, you know, see a 3D dolphin or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, so you could play the game like that. Not sure how, but uh, apparently it was possible. Magic Carpet also supported the infinitesimally small number of VR headsets that were available at the time, such as the Forte VFX-1. This thing was insane. Uh, It was a $1,000 VR headset that displayed VGA resolution, had head tracking in the pitch, yaw, and roll axes, and came with a three-button motion-sensing puck controller. 
It interfaced with your machine via an ISA card that had pass-throughs for audio and a VESA connector that you would uh, pass through your motherboard or graphics card uh, you know, signal to. It also had integrated stereo headphones. It's basically kind of the proto Oculus Rift HTC Vive or PlayStation VR. Um, not sure, but I'm pretty sure the price made it pretty much a non-starter for most people in terms of sales. Magic Carpet still supported it and other uh, VR headsets and polarized glasses, shutter glasses and stuff like that right out of the box. Finally, this was one of the first games to be supposedly optimized for Pentium. So if you had a Pentium processor, the game would display that little Intel inside Pentium logo on, uh, on the splash screen and apparently... Some of the game's algorithms were swapped out for more processor-intensive Pentium-capable algorithms. I assume these were related to enemy AI, but despite all my looking and reading and researching, I could not find any documentation as to what these supposed enhanced algorithms actually did. My strong suspicion is that the only actual difference was the icon shown at startup. Yay for marketing ploys. So the game's MIDI music was composed by uh, by Bullfrog regular Russell Shaw, who also did the music for Syndicate, Theme Hospital, and basically most of Molyneux's other games, up to and including 2014's Fable Anniversary. Uh, I generally like Shaw's work, though, I don't know, to me this game's music is a little bit lacking. It's fitting, it has a nice sort of Persian, Middle Eastern air to it, but on its own to me it's not immensely interesting. listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for the dev story. As I've said already, Magic Carpet is a Bullfrog Productions game. So obviously that screams Peter Molyneux to us, right? Well, our friend Mr. Molyneux will factor into the story, but the story of Magic Carpet does not begin with him. In fact, the idea for Magic Carpet begins with programmer Glenn Corpse. Now, Glenn had come onto the staff in the early days as an artist and programmer on the original Populous and continued with the company through Powermonger and Populous 2 and, you know, all that. After doing coding work on the Amiga and Atari ST versions of Populous 2, Glenn started messing around a bit with graphics routines on the PC. Now, in his previous work on Powermonger, he'd done some simple 3D work which generated, uh, you know, kind of straightforward landscapes using 3D fractals. Now, a few years had passed since then, and, you know, high-end 386s and 486s could draw many times more polygons than the Amigas and STs he was used to working with. So that fractal landscape generator, along with some tutorials he came across about how to do garage shading, eventually evolved into a small demo program in which a user could fly the camera around a 3D landscape. So a bit more time passed, and Glenn came across more first-person 3D games, such as Wolfenstein 3D and Ultima Underworld. He realized that combining, you know, a, a bunch of features of all these different games and using texture mapping could really take his flying through the world demo to the next level, making the world really look like a world. 
Now, all this stuff was kind of happening on the sidelines as Bullfrog was kind of pouring all the resources at this point into a real-time strategy game called Syndicate, which, uh, again, we've previously talked about. Go check out that show. So the Flying Around the World demo, despite being a secondary project, had never really been, while it was never a high priority, it had never been forgotten. And, you know, while it was a really cool tech demo, that's kind of all it really was. There wasn't a game. Flight sims were not really Bullfrog's thing and you know glenn wasn't really too happy about them anyways he felt like there wasn't a lot of you know you kind of like attack a little target that's a couple of pixels wide he didn't want that and uh so you know he says that he's not entirely sure who came up with the idea to revolve uh the flight aspect of the game around a magic carpet but he said he's pretty sure it was probably peter molyneux so with this idea in mind you know a magic carpet a game started to take form. Now, the point of the game, at least in its initial inception, was uh, to fly across the world and fight dragons that would emerge from caves. You'd probably attack them using fireballs. It was a lot of fun, but it was generally fairly pointless. Uh, cool thing was the draw distance in this game was actually quite far. And, uh, you know, Glenn initially played with a couple of different viewpoints. Uh, I started off with first person moved on to first person, but with a a visible carpet, arms and legs in view, and eventually a full third person view. Now, Molyneux actually liked the third person and suggested they keep it. And, you know, we should do, we should do rotoscope animation, create immensely smooth character movements and map every movement to a rotoscoped animation and blah, 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 because, you know, it's Peter Molyneux and he wanted to go nuts. Now, Corpse was not a fan of this idea as, uh, you know, it would have added a huge amount of work to the project, so kind of pulled back from that. And uh, at the end of the day, he decided to revert back to the first-person view uh, due to issues with the game character kind of jumping and jerking around when colliding with uh, with terrain. Still, though, there was sort of some gameplay here, but this wasn't in any shape to be called a true game as of yet. Now, after the release of Syndicate, uh, programmer Sean Cooper was added to the project. Now, Cooper was basically brought on to get the project done and took on the role of game director. Uh, he took a look at this this demo that uh, Glenn had been working on and uh, fiddling with, and frankly, he wasn't too impressed. Really, in his mind, it was just a landscape along with a man flying around on a carpet. Whoopsie day. So he had what he considered to be most of the vision for the game already in place at this point, in his mind at least. Uh, the graphics engine that had been developed fit in with this vision. Any other work done, you know, the combat, any control of the dragons, flying carpet man, all that stuff didn't. Everything except the core graphics engine was scrapped from uh, from Corpse's tech demo. Now, this didn't mean that they were starting things from scratch. Now, Cooper had been working on Syndicate before this, and uh, if you do roll back to that show, you'll hear a little bit about the engine underlying that game. Now, as much as Syndicate was just, you know, was an XCOM-style real-time tactical strategy game, there was an entire simulation engine underlying Syndicate. Uh, You know, I think I said it in that show, but when you play Syndicate, you're wandering around in a fully realized working world with people, vehicles, and systems all doing their own thing, you know, going from place to place, driving around, regardless of your actions. So... They took this base syndicate kind of world management code and layered Corpse's 3D graphics on top of that. 
Now, the new 3D flying game now had solid AI systems underneath that would make implementing the game and events and enemies and all that stuff much easier. This irritated Corpse a little bit as uh, he felt his original code was faster. However, he does admit that Cooper's code was easier to work with, which at the end of the day was probably more important. So now that they had a working engine, uh, they turned to art. The whole concept of the magic carpet led them to sort of a Middle Eastern Arabian Nights kind of a theme. Apparently there was a tangent into steampunk at one point, but that got quashed. Uh, Art assets were created at a breakneck pace, especially because the team didn't have a ton of experience working in uh, 3D due to the relative newness of the medium. So everything took them a little bit longer than it would later take them. One odd idea, at least an idea that I think is quite odd, uh, that did make it into the final game was the concept of having the whole user interface as graphical only, which, uh, you know, because, you know, usually you'd like hover over an icon and underneath there'd be an explanation of what that icon does. Didn't exist in this game. And that led to confusion about, you know, what did what on the UI. I know it confused me. I kept trying to, I was trying to save my game and I kept loading a blank game so that was a bit confusing but uh you know that aside an actual playable game was forming here spells were introduced some of which would actually deform the landscape uh you know the concept of castles and mana were also introduced the castle concept in particular though caused a major issue which made it into the final game or you know it it, it, there was a major change to kind of the visual aesthetic of the game because of these castles as Glenn Corpse explains on a post on his personal blog, he had targeted the graphics engine of Magic Carpet at 486 CPUs running at over 50 megahertz. So we're looking like 486.66 at kind of the low end here. Getting all this glitz and glamour to run on that kind of machine was definitely a bit of a challenge, but he was able to succeed and, and you know, get it running pretty well. Now, in his original Flying Landscape demo, demo each terrain tile measured about 20 in-game meters in size. That's about 65 feet for you non-metric folk. Uh, the engine would display 20 tiles in any given direction before fading out into fog. Now, that gave you an immediately visible game world of about 400 meters or 1,300 feet in any given direction, which, you know, honestly is pretty good, especially given that we're in, you know, 1993, 1994 here. Well, now we introduce the concept of castles and the concept that castles will not just be plopped on the earth they will grow up out of this terrain mesh that has been created so the problem here is that these these 20 by 20 meter you know 65 by 65 foot terrain tiles have to morph up into castle walls which could not be 20 meters by 20 meters so he cut down all the scale of these tiles to a factor by a factor of 10 to represent about two meters of in-game distance. He couldn't really up the number of visible tiles if he wanted to keep the performance acceptable on the target hardware. So now instead of 400 meters of draw distance, you had 40 meters of draw distance or about 130 feet. Now, this is the one and only reason that Magic Carpet has such an infinitesimally short draw distance before the terrain fades out into the fog of war. Uh, you know, in-game character sprites were scaled up and the speed of the carpet was scaled up. So the big open world suddenly started to feel a little bit smaller. So it's, you know, it's kind of unfortunate. And uh, it's something that's very noticeable when, when you start playing the game. 
So once Cooper came onto the team, the schedule really picked up. This was no longer a side project. This was a game that was going to be released. Uh, it went from the initial prototype, you know, the initial prototype of the flying around the world demo and then, you know, having everything ripped out and put back in and blah, blah, blah. So from prototype to basically releasable game in about four and a half months, uh, Les Edgar, who's the CEO of, uh, of Bullfrog, had promised Cooper basically a huge bonus, about one and a half years salary on top of his regular salary to uh, to get the game out on time. So let's just say he was motivated. Uh, the multiplayer was worked on as well as the single player levels. And, uh, you know, it was hoped that a network game would be able to support up to 16 players, but eight was set as the maximum as the network code was not robust enough to handle all the stuff that was going on. You have player positioning, you have the terrain deformities, all this, all this craziness. So, uh, you know, there was just uh, the code couldn't handle all of that for 16 people. Uh, the circular radar map was added to uh, help players find each other and increase the excitement in multiplayer. So as the game near completion, Corpse would move on to uh, work on Dungeon Keeper. But, uh, you know, he'd pop in every now and again and add some ancillary features to uh, to his magic carpet engine. Uh, the VR support that I talked about was actually one of these. In fact, I read that a company called Virtual IO personally gave Corpse and I think one other guy $1,000 and two bottles of tequila to add support for their device into the game. Uh, this is when he also threw in the red-blue 3D support and the 3D stereogram, though uh, he regrets adding in the stereogram because apparently uh, messed up the math a little bit, so it never really worked quite right, though it was playable to some degree in stereogram mode. So the game released in 1994 to critical praise. Reviewers loved the cutting-edge 3D graphics, the epic terrain-destroying spells, and the fast-paced action of Magic Carpet. Uh, The game's successful launch quickly led to an expansion with an additional 25 levels on top of 50 of 75 freaking levels in this game. And uh, then it quickly led to a sequel, which released in 1996, called Magic Carpet 2, The Netherworlds. When you're a wizard trapped in the Netherworlds, and its demon overlord discovers which dimension you've just come from, you have good reason to wonder how long that dimension has left before said demon transforms it into an ornament for his throne room. I smell the fear of mortal men. Then you remember that promising apprentice you once introduced to the Eldritch Arts. No! So it appears that the ruler of the netherworld, Visaluth, had been watching the events of the first game and now feels the time is right to try and take over the world of the living. Of course, it's up to you as the same wizard's apprentice from the first game to stop him. So Magic Carpet 2 keeps the same basic gameplay as the first game. However, it adds nighttime and underground levels 
and also introduced the concept of mission goals and checkpoints. So unlike the first game where collecting mana was the only goal for each world, now you have a variety of goals, a variety of mid-mission checkpoints. There's mid-level save points, which the first game lacked. A whole bunch of nice little uh, you know, quality of life improvements. 15 new spells were added, as was the mechanic of upgrading those spells through three levels. Now, upgrades happen through using the spell, kind of you know Skyrim style, or uh, through experience scrolls. Uh, 20 more monsters with a range of special abilities were also added to the game. So you'd think that Magic Carpet 2 would be an amazing success, since obviously it had everything the first game had and more. Well, not entirely true, as happens from time to time. EA rushed the development of the game to make Christmas a uh, release date, and uh, thus it shipped with bugs, including a full-on, you know, crash-to-desktop kind of uh, situation. Also, since the game wasn't really playtested very much, a lot of the spells were fairly useless, and uh, many of the enemies were very unbalanced. In fact, the poor sales and rushed release schedule of Magic Carpet 2 was the last draw for Peter Molyneux, who at this point decided to leave EA to form Lionhead Studios after the game's release. Where can we get our hands on Magic Carpet today? Well, both Magic Carpet 1 and 2 are available on GOG.com for $5.99 US each. Uh, they generally run well with the default settings. However, the first game for sure is, is optimized for the 320 x 200 low-res VGA mode. Now, uh, Glenn Corpse offers up some suggestions to tweak the DOSBox configs for uh, high-res performance on his blog. And uh, there's a blog... Uh, post at glencorpse.blogspot.ca or probably .com. Sorry, that's my, that's my auto redirect, um, and I will post that in the show notes. Okay, before we get to the verdict, we've got some emails. First one comes from Rob, and Rob writes, "Here's my magic carpet memory, which has nothing to do with playing the game." I worked at Best Buy in 1994 and 1995. I started in the computer department, moved to the computer software department, and eventually ended up in the tech booth. This predates the Geek Squad by several years. Back then, it was just me and another guy wearing white lab coats and doing our best to fix what we could. When I started at Best Buy, we had probably a dozen IBM-compatible PCs on display from a few different manufacturers in the computer department. They were sorted by processor from slowest to fastest at one end of the aisle, all the way in the back. We had a few 386 machines, and then from there, they went up from 48625s all the way up to 48650s. Each time a faster model arrived, like the 48666, the slowest machine on the aisle would be removed. By the time the 486DX4100s arrived, I think all the 386s were gone. Then, one day, it arrived. A Pentium 60. Most of the people working in the computer department were computer nerds, and we marveled at the speed and power inside that machine. Soon a P75 arrived, followed by a P90, and I made the bold prediction that someday all the 486s would be gone, even though I'm not sure I believed it. Around this time, I moved from the, I moved from the computer department over to software. It was a great job. My job was to walk around the software department and answer people's questions about software, mostly games, during the slow periods, I would get boxes of product from the warehouse and restock the shelves. I remember the day Magic Carpet was released. It made a big impact on me because it had the Intel Pentium logo printed right on the front of the box, along with a message that read, includes enhancements for the Pentium processor. It made such an impression on me, 
and it was the first time I realized that my super fast 486 DX4 100 would not be the king of the hill forever, and that I would eventually have to upgrade one of those to one of those newfangled Pentium computers if I wanted to play all the latest and greatest games. When customers would ask me if they really needed a Pentium computer, all I would show them, I would show them that box and with another one of my bold predictions, tell them that someday all games here would require a Pentium computer. Well, thanks, Robin. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And I always, you know, I, I never worked at, you know, Best Buy or any other computer store or anything like that. But I spent a lot of time, you know, going up and down the aisles and, you know, having conversations with the the guys in the hall, you know, and talking about this and talking about that. And, and yeah, you know, I, I also, I remember that back in the day when, you know, it was that game or it was like not scorched earth, but there was another, maybe it was scorched earth. No, that's like a tank game. Anyways, there were, there were a couple of games right at the beginning that were like, you know, re- this one didn't, but eventually there were games that were like required Pentium processor. And, and I, I would always get upset at those games. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I had this 486 DX266, which was like kind of in my, uh, realm of, of friends, was pretty much the the monster machine until this one guy we knew that, you know, his dad was a doctor and they had all the best stuff. And he got, yeah, one of those first gen, it was a Pentium 90, I think. And it was actually that 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 generation of original Pentium processors that had, it was like, I can't remember, was it like a floating point problem or something like that? Basically, there was like this very low level error in the processor that would like basically cause the machine to crash every once in a while. And, uh, that thing was just blazing fast. And I remember because he got this, it was like this blazing fast machine and it was a full tower. The thing was like, I don't know, four feet tall or something. And it was just like, yeah, it was a fast machine and it was a big case. And I don't know why you'd ever get a full tower, but it was, I just remember it being this very impressive thing. Like I found, you know, from 286 to 386. Yeah, it was, it was a big bump and multimedia and all that stuff. But Maybe I wasn't old enough to realize how much faster the 386 actually was, and then 386 to 486, it was it was nice performance wise, but it wasn't like these were to me like really evolutionary steps. But I found 486 to Pentium, like the Pentiums really kind of changed the way we did things a lot of you know, and and I don't really have any concrete evidence as to why, but to me, and maybe it was just the marketing thing and the name change, but to me, like the Pentiums were like a different thing from all the things that came before. And yeah, and you know what? Eventually, all games did require a Pentium computer, and now Pentiums are crap. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're into i5s and i7s, and, you know, soon those will be crap, and whatever comes next is going to be, it's going to be the next thing. So thank you for that. Next, we have an email from Ben, and Ben writes, Hello, Joe and Blockers. I hope you're doing well. Magic Carpet is a fairly unique game and a bit of a curiosity for how it approached the flying 3D shooter genre. Unlike Terminal Velocity, which mostly keeps the same formula from level to level, Magic Carpet throws interesting and unique new things at you regularly, letting you experiment and forcing you to adapt. For me, though... The most interesting thing about it, beyond the incredible engine and sometimes frustrating interface, is the game's approach to resource management. Usually, shooter games have you focused on two pools of resources, ammunition and weapons to attack with, and health, shields, and armor for your protection. Uh, The goal isn't directly tied to these, usually instead being a set point to reach in the level. 
Magic Carpet changes this up by making the actual level's goal resource-based and by giving you various options for collecting what you need, whether it be fighting monsters, converting villagers to your cause, battling enemy wizards, or just finding it laying around. This focus on collecting a resource outside of offensive and defensive power makes Magic Carpet a very different experience. It's like capture the flag mode, but there's many different flags and you can get them in a variety of ways. Going to this game from its contemporaries is a little bit like starting up Carmageddon after playing straight racing games. The elements are largely similar, but the experience is more open for better or for worse. Personally, I prefer a more focused experience, particularly as I find Magic Carpet gets a bit overwhelming after a while, but I absolutely appreciate its strengths and admire its ambitions. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and as always, keep on blocking Ben. Well, thanks, Ben. And you know, that's actually, it's not something I thought of, but you know, comparing it to to something like Carmageddon is actually pretty, you know, a pretty apt comparison in that I remember, you know, playing Carmageddon and my first time through without having really read the manual or anything, I I tried to play it like a racing game. I'm like, oh, screw these guys. I'm going to choose the fast car and I'm just not going to get hit. And I kept losing because you can't win Carmageddon unless you you play the game the way they want you to. You have to cause mayhem to extend your timer. And, you know, Magic Carpet's the same way. If you just play it like a shooter, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, kill all the enemies and you don't collect the mana, then you're never going to win the game. So, you know, if you didn't read the thing and say, oh, whatever, I played Descent, I played Quake, and I played Doom, and, you know, all this other stuff, so I'm just going to kill everything. Well, yeah, you can kill everything, but then you're just going to fly around in circles because you can't just stop <laughs> you can't just like get to the end you gotta you gotta collect so thanks next an email from brian brian writes assalam alakim joe and listeners of the middle eastern memory block podcast according to moby games both magic carpet and descent were released in 1994 which is really remarkable uh, both games have a lot in common but accomplish very different things despite having similar controls games tend to make a resource scarce to add tension in Descent, ammo and health were plentiful, but levels ended with a race against the clock through a maze. Well, Magic Carpet felt more like a real-time strategy game where you compete against another wizard for limited map resources. Uh, the mechanics will already be covered in this show, so I'll skip to my favorite aspect of the game, the engine. I absolutely love the dynamic terrain in this game. The deserts and beaches look so mysterious with the rolling hills and seaside cliffs, and... It was amazing how you could cast spells to build castles or conjure volcanoes that would bend the earth and permanently change the landscape. It looked so seamless and naturalistic, similar to the real-time voxel terrain you'd see in demo scene productions. I loved shooting my mana grabbing sparkles into the ground and watching the orbs roll up and down the hills. Another thing I loved about the engine was the stereoscopic 3D. It supported red-blue 3D glasses, which was ugly but really worked, and that magic eye auto-stereogram mode where you'd cross your eyes and see 3D. I can do those things on a still image, but I couldn't hack my brain to do it on a moving picture. The last thing I'll mention is that Magic Carpet reminds me of another Peter Molyneux game, Black and White. Both of those games are gorgeous and feature malleable landscapes as well as buildings and citizens that you influence but never control directly. Uh, I love the early sandbox levels of these games, but I feel like the serenity is spoiled when conflict is introduced into the gameplay. I would love to play non-combat versions of these games at a slow pace. Maybe I should try Gotus, Awada, Brian. Well, thanks, Brian. And and you know, it's funny. Like, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I always love... 
like I've said this before. I love I love worlds and I love world building. And I've always said that, you know, I think that's why I love reading Star Wars novels and why I love reading Battletech. And, you know, I'm reading through the Wing Commander novels now because I really like background. I really like worlds and, and knowing how things are in like a normal day in like a fantasy or sci-fi world. And I kind of always really enjoy the beginning of a game where, you know, everything's going well. And I'm like, oh, you know, I just want to be a person in this world doing a job the way it's supposed to be done. And I don't, I don't necessarily need to be like fighting, you know, for, for the survival of the human race or trying to save everybody or whatever. I just want to like, and I think that's why in a way I sort of like wing commander. Cause yes, there's this horrible war going on and you know, things are on the line and blah, 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 but I'm just a pilot and I'm doing my job. It's not like I'm this incredible hero. I'm not, you know, not everything depends on me though. In theory, it kind of does. I like being like a cog in the machine and just seeing how the world reacts to, you know, the machine doing its job. I just, I I just think that's the kind of thing is very interesting. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, is goddess even available for purchase anymore? Uh, I've, I think I might even have it. Who knows? And yeah, I mean, if the, if that's a kind of thing, just kind of world building without conflict, I think that would be interesting. Kind of a more constructive type of strategy game would be uh, pretty cool. That's probably why I like SimCity. Anyways, thanks a lot, Brian. That was great. Next, we got a lot of emails this time around. Thanks, everybody. So next, we've got an email from Jenny. And Jenny writes, Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. I have a confession. For all that I know, Magic Carpet is a classic. I didn't actually play it until GOG released it back in 2011. I was attending E3 as a press member that year and haven't been able to get back since, grr, and got into uh, a GOG presentation. The PR guy was dressed in a lab coat with a stethoscope and was handing out pill bottles filled with breath mints and a prescription slip, and on it was a redemption code for Magic Carpet. Oddly, I feel like that should be a redemption code for a theme hospital, but anyways. The presentation was small, maybe 30 people, but they were so excited when GOG announced that they were releasing Magic Carpet. Uh, I wasn't as excited. This was during GOG's teasing marketing campaign where they were implying that they'd gotten back the back catalog for a major publisher and were hinting that it was LucasArts. It wasn't. But I went back to my hotel room that night, downloaded the game, and understood why they were so excited. Not entirely my cup of tea, but it felt like such a different beast compared to the flood of first-person shooters on the market at the time. And I understand why many consider it to be revolutionary in its genre. It's charming, it's fun, just mindlessly blasting its stuff. Just a quick memory of Magic Carpet and my one and only time at E3. Keep up the good work. Regards, Jenny. And to top it all off, we have an email from Tomer. Take it away, sir. So... Hi, blockers. Um, I don't have a lot of time, and I just wanted to chime in a little bit about uh, Magic Carpet and Magic Carpet 2. Uh, those are freaking good games. Uh, one of the, like, beyond the, the unusual game mechanics and the fact that the whole game is a little bit, you know, wonky, uh, the game mechanics are weird, the interface is unusual. Everything is kind of off kilter uh, compared to anything that you might be used to, and it takes a little while to get used to. But once you do, this is a fantastic series of games. Uh, not only is gameplay, you know, really, really compelling and, and, and fun generally and pretty challenging, but also uh, the 3D engine is fantastic for its time. So one of the things that Bullfrog, uh, you know, the company that produced the game, was really, really uh, well known for is 3D engines. And uh, I think they had some ties with the demo scene as well. I know that Alex um, Alex Evans, also known as Statics, 
uh, used to work for them for a while, uh, and he's a just an amazing programmer. So everything pretty much that Bullfrog did in the '90s was technically, uh, you know, at the top of the game, uh, be it Dungeon Keeper or uh, you know experimental experimental games like Tube or even you know more traditional games like High Octane. Everything that they did was really, really, really. Uh, technologically advanced, Magic Carpet being no exception, and uh, I just, uh, you know, I just have very fond childhood memories of the game. I also replayed Magic Carpet 1 and 2 about, you know, half a year ago, maybe a year ago, and still uh, thoroughly enjoyed both games. So I highly recommend them. Uh, I think they, gameplay-wise, still hold up pretty, really well today, and definitely worth play. Uh, if you haven't, check them out. Uh, if you have, and you know you're you're curious about what else the company did beyond you know the the familiar titles like Theme Park and Theme Hospital, uh, you should definitely go and check them out. They did some, you know, that they published some really really fantastic games. Um, so yeah, one of my favorite uh, video game companies from the '90s. One of my favorite video games from the '90s. I hope you agree. Um, you know, and probably. Uh, you, you probably ended up criticizing the control scheme quite a bit, um, which is only fair, but I think it's it's totally worth getting over just to enjoy the game. So cheers, uh, have a great show, and see you next time. Well, thanks, Tomer. And, uh, you know, my, my answer will probably be my verdict, so let's just get right into that. Okay, so does Magic Carpet hold up today. I'm not really sure, I guess is 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 my answer. I'm I'm not I'm not saying no. I'm definitely not saying no. I'm not saying it does not hold up, but I can't absolutely say that it does. I mean, for the time, I mean, Tomer just said it, all the emailers just said it, I said it, you know, from a technological perspective, the 3D is pretty amazing. For the time, the 3D landscape stuff is pretty damn cool. The support for multiple control schemes is cool. The VR and 3D stuff is neat. And, you know, the gameplay, the game is long. There's a lot of missions. There's a lot of variety of, of you know, spells. There's a lot of variety of enemies. There's a lot of stuff to do. But at the end of the day, you're just sort of, you know, collecting mana until you're done collecting mana and moving on to the next world. Uh, the controls, Tomer, yes, you were, you were right. They're immensely frustrating. They're immensely squirrely. And, you know, for good or for bad reasons aside, um, the draw distance is so incredibly short that it does really, to me, make a big open world game feel pretty small and confining. So, you know, overall, if you have nostalgia for it, Magic Carpet is, a, is you know, an amazing cutting edge game. And if you had years of fun with it, I'm, I'm certain that playing it again, you will recapture that enjoyment. It's not a game... I think, you know, when you flip it into high res mode, it even aged pretty well graphically. Like the graphics engine is really, really amazing. Like I said, it has all the staple requirements of a modern 3D graphics engine. And when you kick it up to 640 by 480, it looks pretty damn good. And, you know, that engine would go on to power in some form or another, go on to power pretty much every bullfrog game that came after it until the advent of 3D accelerators. Um, You know, without nostalgia... Is the game good? I don't want to say it's not because it's interesting. And, you know, the the controls, the controls, the controls, the controls. But to be honest, you know, once I played, 
I had to play the first mission because, okay, <laughs> let's talk about it this way. Uh, I hadn't played this game before. It's one of those games that I, I heard about and I knew about and I should have played and I didn't. So I went in going, okay, well, I know what's going on in this game. You fly around, you shoot things, you know, kind of like in terminal velocity or, you know, descent or whatever. So I boot into the game without without reading anything. And first off, you have the UI that has no labels. So I started randomly clicking on things. And eventually I was able to start the game, or at least I thought I did. And, you know, I had, but, and, um, you know, you kind of touch the mouse and your thing goes all over the place. You start spinning around and like it's, the controls are very sensitive. And, you know, that kind of put me off initially. And it took me about three tries to, to, you know, figure out the controls, get through the first level go through, skim through the manual, figure out what's going on. And once you do that, I'd say after about 10 minutes of flying around in the first few levels, you do start to get the hang of the controls. So, you know, this is a game that if you do want to experience it properly, you're not going to jump in and automatically be good at it. You do have to give the controls a little bit of time. And, you know, after that initial 10 minutes, after a few hours you're comfortable and once in a while you kind of things kind of go a little sideways and you recover and and you pick up where you left off you don't necessarily die you just kind of like turn the wrong way or you move the mouse the wrong way or you move it too far and things kind of go a little nuts but you you can get good at it so like i said uh if you have nostalgia for it this game is absolutely amazing if you don't have nostalgia for it and you have the patience to figure out the controls and play through the first few levels, which the first few levels, definitely they don't introduce a lot. And then kind of once you get into things, the game becomes very interesting, very, there becomes a lot of variety of gameplay, teleporters, different enemies, different situations and things like that. So do I recommend it? Yeah, you know, I'd say give it a try. Is it a wholehearted recommendation? If you've never played it before, I'm going to have to say, no, but I think in a lot of ways it does hold up and it's important and, you know, the graphics are great and amazing and, and the technology behind it is amazing. So, yeah, it's just it's just an important game. So I'd say give it a whirl. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. All right. So right before I end things off, uh, it's time for a giveaway. I, I got my hands on a copy of uh, or a key for Grim Fandangle Remastered which is such an awesome, awesome game. And I think I've even given it away before, but I want to give it away again because I feel like if you haven't played Grim Fandango or you haven't played it in a long time, this is a game you need to play. So send me an email with the with the, uh, the, the subject line Grim Fandango giveaway to podcast.umbcast.com. If you want a copy, I'll probably pick a, a winner on uh, the next show in a couple of weeks. So uh, that's that email, Grim Fandango giveaway. If you want a copy of Grim Fandango Remastered. So... That aside, we are done. That's that for another show. Thanks to everyone for contributing. As always, so many emails this week. This is so amazing. Thank you, everybody. I knew this was kind of a bigger a bigger deal, and we we're going to get a couple more emails. But uh, I'm glad with uh, with everything that we got. So next time, I'm going to be staying in 1994 with another game that again I should have played but never did. <laughs> and frankly. For some reason, I thought this was an adventure game, and it is most assuredly not. I'm going to be covering Mad Lab Software's Jagged Alliance series. I never touched it before, so I'm excited to give it a whirl. So as always, you can send email. Please do send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. 
Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. And don't forget that if you enjoy the show, you can help me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the show, please consider joining my 45 amazing patrons and donating a buck or two per episode to help me cover costs and hit the next goal of more shows focusing on longer games. Give myself a bit more time to kind of jump into those really long RPGs or really big game series and stuff like that. So you can check out the show notes for this episode and others at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash show and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. I put up videos on my game research stuff and uh, think I'm going to do uh, a fun little side project where I do a little bit of compare and contrast between uh, PC versions and console ports of uh, some of the games I've already talked about. I think I'm going to start off with Wing Commander 1 for Martin. <laughs> We're going to settle the uh, the long my long-standing uh, dislike for Wing Commander 1 and SNES edition. So you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some five-star reviews over there, or, you know, whatever you think I deserve, but, you know, hopefully five stars. Uh, that is that, and we will see you next time for Jagged Alliance here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join us.